I'm Brendan. And I'm Tara. And this is Now We're Farming. So we're here. We talked about doing this for a long time, right? Oh, so long. Yeah. This has been something we've wanted to do. It's on our bucket list. I think we had that Canadian modesty thing going where we felt like we didn't really have anything valuable to say. But we've been at this how many years now? Six years. Yeah. And what we're unique is that we're first generation farmers. I'm a city girl. uh, Born and raised in the GTA area in eastern Ontario. And so I didn't come from a farming background at all. I rode horses. I did, a little bit. I, I didn't grow up on a farm, but I grew up in farming country. So I could sort of fake it till I till I made it. But you did not have a farm? No. Given no. To you. Mom and dad didn't farm. Your mom, mom and dad definitely didn't farm. <laughs> no. Okay. <laughs> what are we talking about today? We're talking about buying ag properties and how that's a little bit different than buying a house in the city or in the suburbs. We're going to talk about how we kind of stumbled our way into our first property. Okay. It's embarrassing, but we sort of, we got into farming by watching some documentaries, I think, that this was sort of sparked it for us. So we were couch potatoes, what was it, An Inconvenient Truth, Al Gore's famous documentary. Still love it. And then we were watching some BBC, um, like a BBC series on pioneers or something. Yeah. I loved that series. And then there was like a TVO documentary. So we're in Ontario, Canada. And there was a TVO documentary on starting a farm. Yes. So it was like kind of people like us, like first generation. Yeah. And so we got like crazy inspired by that, I think. We got this like romantic notion of what farming was going to be Oh, yes. It was going to be so wonderful. And we were (laughs) going to grow all of our own food. And it was going to be green. It was like that ultimate cliche um, Our kids were going to grow up in, in amongst wildflowers. Right. Now, we weren't out for social justice, right? We just really liked the idea of growing stuff. And being dirty and outside. Yeah. So we got inspired by these documentaries, and we were like, we want to do this, but we have nothing. And we lived in the time in a house in a small town, but it was definitely like a, like a suburbs of a small town like it wasn't not. yeah we weren't uh, yeah it was like a town of like or a village of 200 but it was in farm country i dragged you back to farm country we were surrounded city. by farms but we did not live in a farmhouse and we had we definitely lived on a street with neighbors yeah we had street lights and a paved road and i had been gardening for a few years at that point we just decided and you supported i think you're an enabler to be honest <laughs> um we'd gotten into backyard chickens that's the gateway drug to all hobby farming. Yeah. Backyard chickens. Yeah. When your friends start getting backyard chickens, um, yourself. distance yourself. <laughs> right? So how did that start? We took a trip to Ikea, ironically. And I think it was to get nursery furniture for our baby that was coming. And on the way there, we saw somebody who had a shed that had been changed into a chicken coop. And I... I don't know if it was a good thing or a bad thing, but said to Brendan, we should get some backyard chickens. And that's all he needed to hear. And he was on the backyard chicken train. 
Yes. It was happening. I needed to do this. Now, I added a little bit of history. I vaguely remember taking masking tape that we had from up from painting or something. Yeah, and he he laid the floor plan out of a chicken coop on my living room floor. Yeah. Because he wanted to see if it was going to be big enough and how many chickens could be fit in this space. It was like, let's get as many chickens as possible. So I was really excited. I was getting ahead of myself. We didn't get chickens in the right season. We had no idea where to buy them. We didn't really know the first thing about keeping chickens. And we rushed into our local tractor supply company and bought up tons of stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think I spent a small fortune at the local hardware store and built the silliest chicken coop possible. And then like we, it wasn't good enough for us to wait for like chick days at the local TSC or, or whatever. It was like, no, we need to get on Kijiji and like find any source of chicken. We were so excited to get into chickens um, that yeah, any any chicken would do at that point, right? He's saying we, but it was mostly him. <laughs> okay, so fast forward, we got the backyard chickens. We were doing that for a while. I think we were these were the world's most expensive eggs that we were making, and our family was growing, right? Our family was growing. So I was pregnant with my son, and we already had one daughter. But with the chickens, I fell in love. I don't like birds. I don't like chickens. Yeah, you hate birds. I hate, I hate birds and I hate chickens. Yeah, she has this like irrational fear of turkeys. They so look like baby dinosaurs. Yeah, so, so in, in Ontario, wild turkeys are making a comeback. You actually mm -hmm. like, and I don't remember turkeys as a kid. So um, now it's pretty commonplace to, you know, drive down a rural road and see turkeys everywhere, which is really cool. But it's your nightmare. My nightmare. Yeah. Yeah, I am not a big fan of, of things flying in and around my head. I'm not a big fan of birds and, and, and chickens. But I did fall in love with taking my daughter out to the chicken coop to get her morning eggs. There was something really romantic about it. Um, and I did like teaching her that aspect of her food and, and making sure that she understood where food came from um, and the sacrifices that animals make. So that we have food. And I think it was it was pretty cool to make stuff for the dinner table. So like, you know, bringing vegetables in from the garden like once a year or something is cool. But every day having stuff coming in was really cool. And, and so we just, we did a deep dive into we this. We did, because then all of a sudden Brendan went into wanting to make cheese. Yes. And he was making cheese and bread. Yes. Cheese and bread. It was it. <laughs> oh my god! I made so many terrible loaves of bread. So like, uh, here's the thing: the drive is there. I don't think the talent is there. Like, <laughs> like I, I think I must have killed. And he made a lot of mozzarella. I did. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So we kind of got bitten by this idea of having this permaculture family project hobby farm, and this backyard and was essentially a small village suburbs wasn't cutting it anymore yeah I so I think your mom had bought me a book on self-sufficiency it, it was a classic book and in it were a bunch of illustrations on the ultimate sustainable like subsistence type farm where um, there's nothing going out to the garbage and 
you're not buying a lot of things because the farm is feeding you. So I remember these illustrations. It would be vines with grapes and and uh, a garden of potatoes, and it was like 20 different vegetables and pigs on 100 square feet. Like it was really impractical. But I would just like daydream about, about these pictures, and they were showing they were showing farms that were like four acres, two acres. You know how to how to live your life on four acres which now is, seems kind of funny, but we, oh my God, we like, we got right into that. Yes. So the house went up for sale and we started the search for our first egg property and we started building a wish list and it was kind of what Brennan was seeing in those illustrations in his book. We wanted to have around four acres, nothing more than 10. And we wanted to have a little barn and at the time it was just any kind of structure would do. We needed to have a house that was going to be big enough for our growing family. And we wanted to have something that was in, within driving distance of our regular full-time jobs. And that was kind of our wish list. We didn't have a ton of other things on there that we thought we really wanted. Then we started our search. Yeah, we, we looked at, how many farms did we look at? Oh, it had to be upwards of 30. Yeah, I, Steve, our realtor, he, he was, was very good. patient. Yes, yes. Yeah, that's definitely the word, I think. We fell in love with homes and then had to let them go because it took forever to sell our place. But as we were looking at those 30-plus properties, we were learning things and we were getting a sense of value. And so our, our wish list that had been pretty simple um, at the beginning of our search began to get complicated. Yeah, so we were learning kind of the hard way that location mattered a lot. And I know that sounds silly when you're looking at homes. Like, of course, location matters. But in rural properties, it matters for completely different reasons, right? So, you know, where it might be valuable in a city or town to be close to a school, the quality of the dirt starts to matter when you're looking at rural properties. And uh, we saw this big time. So we had to stay within a certain region because we had day jobs so we worked in a city and we kind of we had a radius of like 50 kilometers that we thought okay that's kind of our maximum commute and so we were we were looking north of the city and south of the city in every direction and and um yeah the value wasn't necessarily in the home per se it was in um, what other farmers were doing in that area right it was based off the cost of the dirt yeah and so what we came to understand, which we didn't realize living in, in the city, um, was that certain types of agriculture are, have pretty valuable dirt, right? So we're in southwestern Ontario, and it's kind of unique compared with the rest of Ontario. It's kind of this grass, or, or it's like Great Plains type land, where you can do a bit of cash crop grain farming. Compared with the rest of Ontario that's kind of hilly and rocky and maybe not ideal, let's say, for that type of agriculture, the effect is is that it's really spiked land prices. Yeah, so when we're looking at raising livestock, it doesn't make sense to buy cream of the crop dirt that is meant for cash cropping. Yeah, because we were hoping maybe to get some hobby horses and we had these romantic ideas about maybe goats and plopping down a proper chicken coop. But there was no aspirations of being corn farmers yeah. or wheat or soy farmers. And so when we were looking at these properties and that was what the value of the land was evaluated at at about $20,000 an acre instead of 
a rocky part of the province being at $5,000 an acre, we weren't getting a lot of bang for our buck. No. And so looking at all of these places, we came to understand that was pretty key. So location still matters for rural properties. It matters a lot. You need to understand what's going on there. When we were looking at these properties, it wasn't apples to apples, I guess, right? It was apples to pears. We started to just hope that every place we looked at ticked off some basic boxes. Yeah, we'd look at a lot of places where the house would be phenomenal and the land would be no good. And then we'd look at another place and the land would be fantastic and the house would be unlivable. And so we got really good at coming up with what our deal breakers were. And so the deal breakers for us is that we wanted a home that our kids and and us could be proud of. We wanted at least four acres. And then we wanted to have a barn that had hydro, water, and if we could get it, a concrete floor. Yeah, and that started to matter more uh, as things went on. But uh, certainly we started to care about these things um, as we were looking at stuff. And we weren't always uh, finding it. So it, it, I guess the takeaway from this is, is that um, persistence pays off and that you do need to look at a lot. It's not going to be like five farms, right? And you find your gem. I mean, maybe, but not likely. Maybe, but it's also that when you look at those five farms, you haven't really gotten the experience to know what your wish list is yet. It takes seeing all of those places to get an understanding of A, value, but then B, what what works. And as you go through those places, you're like, oh, you know what? That's really awesome. I think that I need that in my life when I'm running my farm. Like hydro was something that we didn't really think about. And then we went to look at a barn at the night, a place in the evening. Mm -hmm. And then we had to go through the barn in the dark. And we were like, right, we need hydro. Yeah, but I mean, at that time, uh, we were still hobby uh, farming or or that was what we were targeting it was for us and it's if you're looking to see how land is being used and what that land is meant for a really good way of knowing is just driving up the concession and seeing how the farmers that are currently living there are using it if you drive around this region uh, there's a lot of like rusted out page wire knocked over fences that are going around you know wheat and soy and cornfields and so you know, if, if you're seeing a lot of that, it means that, you no, know, maybe there was animal agriculture here at one point, but um, it's very cash crop uh, grain oriented. And so if you're going to be starting a farm that is livestock heavy, you definitely, you need to be looking around for the feed store and the animal vet, you know, the vet that will come out to your farm. Because you, you need all of those uh, vendors, you need all of, all of those suppliers to, um, to grow and scale and uh, and have things be manageable. And that's not to say that if you look at a place and it has a bunch of dairy cows on it, that it's then meant for dairy cows, because that's not what we're saying. You can take that land and put alpaca on it if that's what you really want to do. It's just saying that that's livestock land. Yes. And so we finally found a place. We found a little four-acre farm. It turned out to not be too far from home, right? It was like five minutes down the road. Yeah, and we could afford it, and um, we got in there, and very quickly, we, you know, we set up our chickens, we set up our gardens, and it had some amenities. So there was, um, there's a little paddock there, right? Mm-hmm. And so you wasted no time um, getting some hobby horses in there. I sure did. And, um, and yeah, so we sort of, we existed kind of happily like that for a couple of years, and it was... It was by no means a, it was a wreck 
farm in the sense that it was, ho- it was hobby farm. It was for us. Yes, it was all family projects and yeah, self-sustainability activities. So when you buy a property, an agricultural property, your property is going to be allocated nutritional units. And nutritional units is a management system of essentially manure. And so when we bought our property, we were allocated four nutritional units. And that's not a coincidence to the fact that we had four acres in our area. It was one acre, one unit. And so the units, animals equal different amounts of that unit. So one 1,200-pound horse is equal to one nutritional unit, or one cow is worth one nutritional unit, or three pigs is equal one nutritional unit. You're quite an expert on the nutritional units. Well, I did a lot of reading on it because I wanted to know exactly what I was allowed to have. (laughs) Right. So I went and got two horses at 1,200 pounds each. That was two of my four nutritional units. And then I got one pony who was considered a half nutritional unit. And so from there, we were left with one and a half units. And we had a couple goats. I think we had four goats at the time, which would equal another half a unit. Mm -hmm. Because it's eight goats to equal one unit. Um, And so we were like, well, what can we do that doesn't require a lot of units? And I said to Brendan, I think you should become a beekeeper because bees equal zero nutritional units. Yeah, and that was... That was pretty creative of you, I, and we started to get quite good at it. I, I always use this term, the, the New York City condo of farms is kind of what we started with. And that forced us to think really creatively about the best use of the space. And so you would come up with this idea of getting into honeybees, and that was certainly influenced by you know, what is still happening right now, which is that bees are, are in decline, and, and um, you know we need to do everything to save the bees. But that made it top of mind. and um, we got into it like a lot of people did. Yes. And then from that, we kind of started selling our honey and we got kind of bitten by the, can we get our farm to make us some money? Yeah. So you and I are pretty entrepreneurial. I run a a business in my, in my day job and uh, we've always been kind of like that. And so, yeah, kind of slowly we started selling honey on the side, right? Honey and eggs. Yeah. And people were asking. They were asking to buy some of this stuff, and we're like, okay. I'm All right, sure. we'll sell it. So yeah. because of that, um, we started to have bigger ideas as to how we could make money. Yeah. And we kind of decided we didn't like the goats. <laughs> the goat, yeah. So we had, at, that, so at, at that point, we had horses, goats, chickens, um, and, and the bees. And the goats were driving us bananas. And right? some geese that I never want to talk about. Yeah, we don't talk about the geese. You didn't like the, well, the birds again, right? Yeah. So the goats were nuts because they kept escaping. I think I put in like the world's most expensive page wire fence and they had figured out how to get under it. And when, after I tried to solve that, they would try to get through the gate. And so we were eating dinner and we would have escaped goats looking at us uh, uh, through the windows at the dinner table. Yes. And then the goats would follow you down to the bus to, to the, get bus, the kids. bus stop yeah. with yeah uh, to get the kids from school. And um, yeah, you can always tell when somebody owns goats when you drive by their farm, not because you can see the goats, but because of the desperate fence that they've had to build <laughs> yeah. to contain the goats. Yeah. So we 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 sold the goats. Yeah. And we decided that we were going to get into sheep instead. And not just sheep, but a specific breed of sheep. So we went and got Ramboulet sheep which is a sheep that's a dual-purpose breed, um, but the wool is particularly valuable. Ooh, look at you. You're a Ramboulet advocate here. I'm a little little (laughs) biased. So we went and got our sheep, and we got 12 sheep. 
which equaled one and a half nutritional units. Mm -hmm. That was the last of our units that we had used. And so within a year or two of having the sheep, we were selling out of wool and we were like, we could sell more if we just had more sheep. Well, we had made our farm number. On we made our farm number on just four off acres. honey and wool. Yeah, on, on four acres, we'd made our farm number. So in Ontario, to be considered a, you know, a legitimate farm, you need to have a certain gross income. And so this, all of a sudden, we found out about this and we're like, oh, we must do this. This is, this is. It became a mission. Yeah. And I think that was partially born. There's a bit of a. I don't know what you would call it, like an inferiority complex. I think we, we felt like we had something to prove to the neighborhood farmers who would sort of raise an eyebrow at us. Um, and, you know, I don't necessarily mean anybody in particular, just just the community that's the vibe, right? Mm-hmm. And so we're like, we're going to make our farm number. And we did it. Um, and then all of a sudden we found ourselves with, it wasn't just a hobby farm now, it was kind of a business. Yeah, and we were bursting at the seams. Yeah. And so we, and it wasn't just the the farm aspect that we were kind of overflowing on. We had had two kids moving into that house, and then we now had three kids, and we were looking to have more. And so we were bursting at the seams in every capacity. So, as you do, all of a sudden the MLS listings start getting emailed to me during the day, and you're like broaching the subject of maybe looking at a bigger farm, and... I'm wondering how the heck we could have possibly afford that. And um, and then all of a sudden we start looking at things with the realtor and we start to really get serious about this, right? Yeah. And the house yet again went on the market. Yeah. Yeah. So and we were back into the search. But this time our wish list had gotten much more complicated. Yeah. Because this time we had real needs, right? So whereas before we were like, oh, well, that would be nice for a garden. And I think we could keep some animals in here. All of a sudden it was like, I need a water line here and I need it, need it to not freeze in winter because I don't want to be hauling hundreds of pounds of water over snow drifts. And, and we need to be able to fit our tractor through this garage door. Yeah. And we need to have a space for a bunch of different types of livestock. And we wanted to make sure that we bought land that was appropriate for livestock and not necessarily for cash cropping. Yeah. Yeah, there was a lot of needs. Yeah, so we we were on the road again looking for places. We still had our day jobs. So the the farm was making a little bit of money, but it wasn't replacing anybody's income. Um but we were we were ready to get going. And um so what kind of places were we looking at? I mean, I guess when I reflect on it it was like 30 acres plus it was like as much land as we could afford as much land as we could afford right because our wish list had gotten much larger but our budget had gotten a little bit bigger <laughs> right but yeah. not enough yeah right yeah and so we were looking at a bunch of different places and we kind of narrowed it down to two different farms at the end of, at the end of the day once our house had sold and we had to buy something we had narrowed it down to two and one was really far from from uh, London where we li- where we needed to work, but it had fantastic outbuildings. It came with a bunch of farm equipment. And then the one that we ultimately bought was within 10 minutes of the city. And so our commute was incredibly short and the land was, was good um, enough for, wo- for livestock, mm-hmm. but we're not gonna become millionaire cash croppers on it. No, no. So. I think even so so we found a place that was 
uh, what are we at? 68 acres? Yes. Yeah. So some of that is bush. Some of that is uh, like workable land and other parts are like hilly pastures. Uh, at the time when we, when we were ready to move in, uh, almost none of it was fenced, but there was a good barn there. It did have water. It did have electricity. It had a good house that would fit us all. Mm -hmm. The house needed a little bit of fixing up. There was lots of improvements to be made, but we could see the potential. And I think had we not gotten the smaller farm first, we almost certainly would have gotten in over our heads in terms of the costs here. Yes. Um, and then uh, secondly, the smaller farm helped us learn what we needed, what mattered and what didn't matter. You know, what, what was a cosmetic thing that we could repair or, or make better and then what was maybe a bigger job that just wasn't worth being the one to build or install or, or what have you and I think it also gave us a reality check on the fact that you shouldn't buy something based off what you want to do right now right there needs to be room for growth and that you need to look at it as in what if I go crazy and want to get cows one day yeah, because I think when we had moved in, even to our hobby farm, we never thought about bees. We definitely never thought about sheep. We didn't really see where we were going to go. And it doesn't mean that we were like aimless. I think anywhere we go in terms of laying out resources, having some breathing room, some yeah, some growth potential is not a bad thing. No, so we found our farm, um, like Brendan said, it's on 68 acres. And we had to do some maneuvering with the zoning on it. The zoning on it is a bit complicated. There's some protected land, there's some wetlands, and then there's workable acreage and the house. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so when you're going around with your realtor, uh, one of the things you want to do if you don't have um, an ag-oriented realtor is like all realtors are aware of zoning and they will they will print off for you. Usually um, they'll have access to some sort of land database where they can show you this stuff. Um, but if your realtor is like, you know, a friend or somebody who does a lot of uh, residential stuff, um, you can do a little bit of due diligence yourself, right? Yes. Yeah. You can go, your listing should tell you quite a bit on it when you're looking at it. Um, but then you can also contact your local municipality and find out what the zoning is on it and actually talk to somebody about what you want to do and can you do it there. Yeah. And it's a good idea to keep things by the book. A lot of municipalities will publish their uh, GIS information. So this is the mapping um, information for uh, uh, the regions they're responsible for. And so you can actually look into the farm, say that you're, you're eyeing up um, and get a sense of what the zoning is on it. And it's, it's not safe to assume that just because you see some fields and, and whatnot, that the whole property is in our in our area what we might call like a1 so just you know you can farm whatever you want um there may be yeah like you were saying some protected uh, uh areas where uh you know there's a bush in the back that is concert marked conservation and that means that you know you you can't just cut it down and and turn it over and plant some corn you have to keep those trees there you have to protect that uh region a bit and we have a little bit of this on our farm now and we like it. It's it's good. You know, not every space should be farmed. Um, we're supposed to sort of work in, in harmony with nature for sure. Yes, but also making sure that the difference in zoning isn't going to affect, and we're going to go back to it again, the, your nutritional units. Right. So if you have a ton of protective land, 
and that can't be something that you use for farming that's going to reduce the amount of nutritional units and thus the livestock that you can have on the property. Right. So our first hobby farm, I think, what was it wasn't zone day one. It was like they had come up with some designation. It was like AR or something. It was like ag recreation, which really it, it did limit um, some of the things we could do with it. Uh, now, we, we stayed within that in our little hobby farm. But uh, yeah, it is. You definitely do want to check that out because it's not something that's easy to change. And uh, you don't want to get stuck with something that, uh, that you can't work with. Yeah. But at the end of the day, you're not going to find the perfect property. It's not going to exist. I don't think. I think it'd be quite the unicorn to find if you were to, to actually find one. But what you can do is take an imperfect property and find the opportunities within it. And so when we bought our property, there's this huge woodlands in the back. But we've talked about doing bush pork and maple syrup. And that's where we keep our, our bees back there. Um, and we could raise turkeys or something like it out there um, as well. And we also graze our sheep on the wetlands that we have there. The horses are too heavy for it, but we do graze the sheep on it. And then the other thing is that we found that we are on a busy road, which was not necessarily something that was a pro when we were buying the property. But then we saw that being on a busy road actually allowed us to have a farm store and some foot traffic. Yeah, we could do a bit of farm gate because we had that traffic. So just, yeah, working with what you've got, really taking an objective look at um, what the land's providing, what the the buildings and, and resources are providing and trying to make the most of it. Finding the opportunities. Yeah, and that fit really well with the type of farm we wanted to do where it was, it, we weren't, it wasn't a, you know, I don't want to use the term monoculture, but um we we were definitely open to having a very diversified um what would you call it a portfolio of things so it you know we weren't just going to scale the sheep and do nothing but sheep we we were definitely going to try to use every part to carry forward some of the things that we had learned with the hobby farm um and scale that up a bit right so that was kind of our, and now we're there and we're happy and we've got uh, quite a few projects going and we have a, quite a few more projects that we want to start. And um, yeah, it's a, just about, it's taking something that kind of works and meets all of your your absolute deal breakers and then making the things that kind of seem like negatives and turning them into positives. So takeaways from, uh, from today's discussion, uh, basically it's okay to start small figure out what works, right? Um, that when you do that scale up eventually, uh, you're, you're buying a business. And I guess, uh, you know, try to look for opportunities with what you do have, not what you don't have. And uh, I, I guess overall, just understand what you're buying and where you're buying it, because all of those things are a factor in uh, your success, kind of the whole way. Absolutely. And then just enjoy it. It's supposed to be a fun and exciting time in anybody's life, and it should be something that is exciting. All right. So that was good. That was good. Are you doing chores tonight, or am I? Oh, let's go feed the animals. <laughs>